Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about how the media covers peace and conflict. I'm Jamil Simon. On July 3rd, the Israeli military launched an aerial raid on the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. It was one of the largest attacks by Israel in the West Bank in over a decade. The Israeli government said they targeted militants who had been carrying out acts of terrorism inside Israel. Twelve Palestinians and one Israeli soldier lost their lives. Our guest this episode, Daniel Estrin, is an international correspondent for NPR, based in Jerusalem for over a decade. He headed to Janine to speak to residents in the wake of the attack. At one point in his report, Estrin is speaking with a local fitness trainer and gym owner. On the man's kitchen counter, Daniel observes protein powder next to broken glass. Despite enduring a harrowing 48-hour attack, the man speaks with pride about his work. He says he's the best personal trainer in the Middle East. He says he works with young men and tries to persuade them to focus on school and family rather than joining the militants. There's a human element present throughout Daniel Estrin's body of work that places listeners in the shoes of ordinary people, Palestinians and Israelis. Our show's producer, Andrea Moraskin has been following Daniel Estrin's work for years, so when she asked me if she could do the interview, of course I said yes. Daniel Estrin's reporting is important because he brings empathy to his stories that we don't hear from other sources. He's committed to reporting this way, and we're grateful for his work. Daniel Estrin, welcome to Making Peace Visible. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like you to describe your job, and not in the sense of like a job description on paper. I mean, like, what do you see as your role or your prerogative in the media ecosystem? My role is, is an interpreter. I, I have this incredible responsibility of conveying what is going on in one of the most contested, holy, beloved, reviled places on the planet. It's this kind of unfolding drama that, you know, people connect to for different reasons, whether it's because of their religious background, or they have an interest in geopolitics or history or uh, impassioned about the conflict and, and sympathizing or, or part of one group or another. Um, But I know that there are tens of millions of people out there listening to me, and most of them just want to know what's going on there they want to be informed they are curious they want to you know experience a sense of being transported to a different place they want to feel some kind of connection and my job as as interpreter is to hold their hand and walk them through a very complex and emotionally charged story and and help them hear the nuances and meet the characters and and get a sense that they've learned something. Do you think there's something about the radio medium that makes it conducive to like a particular type of storytelling or particular types of stories? Oh yeah, storytelling for the ear. Uh whether it's radio or podcasting, it's all about intimacy. You know, I've I've heard it compared to speaking on the phone with a friend. And that feeling of just, you know, it's just one voice 
talking to you and you were just one set of ears listening and it's this very, very intimate medium and it sort of harkens back to the most ancient form of storytelling, which is, you know, sitting around a campfire, uh, listening to a story being told. So there is, I think, something about about audio that kind of sparks the imagination um, and you're actually hearing the voices of the people I'm reporting on. You hear their intonation, you hear their mood, you hear when they pause, even if you don't understand the language, the Hebrew or Arabic that they're speaking, you you, you can understand so much just by hearing the voices. And so, you know, I, I know today people are busy, they are bombarded with news um, by what's on their phones. And I know that, you know, I have a chance when they're walking their dogs or they're doing their dishes or they're driving uh, to soccer practice, they are tuning into NPR and maybe I have a few minutes to kind of grab them in and, and I want to give them something that they can latch onto to sort of transport them to a different atmosphere and, and paint a picture that they can see in their minds. Wow, I feel like I'm on a pledge drive right now. That was so good. <laughs> I mean, it's really sincere because it, it is such hard work what we do. Um, you know, at one time, I remember my parents told me that uh, some of their friends said, oh, yeah, I heard Daniel on the radio today f- doing a 30-second broadcast or a two-minute broadcast. And what, what does he do the rest of his day? <laughs> um, and it just struck me that I think a lot of our listeners may not know what it takes just to get a few minutes of a story onto the air. There's so much labor that goes into it, and and so much of it also is a labor of love. We'll definitely get into that. Uh, but before we do, when you sent me some background materials, there is a profile from Brandeis University, or alma mater, and the headline that they chose for your profile was Bringing Humanity to NPR's Middle East Beat. And I think humanity is a word that would come up for a lot of people describing your reporting, but I'd like to pick it apart a bit. What do you think that actually means to bring humanity to the Middle East Beat? Wow. Well, I mean, this is such a politicized, uh, charged beat uh, where I know that there are interest groups and there are listeners with um, with opinions already formed about who's right and who is wrong. They're listening to my storytelling and they're latching on to every word and trying to trying to see, you know, wh- where the bias is, trying to trying to listen in for um, any hint of, of, of unfair storytelling. And, and I feel that my job is to try to detach from that and to really remember that this is a story not about geopolitics with, without a face. I mean, this is, these are real humans, real people who are living the impact of um, some extraordinary decision-making and, and just extraordinary things that happen to them every single day. And, and I'm always focused on how, how does any bit of news that I'm reporting impact people's day-to-day lives? Um, and so, you know, the, the first rule of thumb in this job is just, you just show up. And I'm, I'm recalling now just a couple months ago, sitting in an apartment in Jerusalem and 
and, I, and I'm sitting in in the home of of mourners. They had just lost their son, their brother, a couple days before to a shooting attack, and and I sat down. I, I came unannounced, um, and I was there with many of the other well wishers and people who were coming in just to to be with the family. And I introduced myself as a journalist, and it was clear that the mourners were in a state of shock and. My job was to get someone to talk to me and to tell me about their experience as a mourner. But, you know, I was I was there to sit patiently and to listen to relatives, you know, talk to me or or just to kind of sit there in those silences before it took about 10 or 15 minutes before um, before the sister of, of the victim said, OK, I, I'm ready to speak to you. And uh, we went into a side room and and uh, and we did an interview. But you know that that's what humanity is about. It's about understanding the context of of the situation you're reporting. You have a job to do, which is to rush back home with tape, with audio, and and put it on on the radio or on the web or on a podcast. But chiefly, it is to to be present and to sit with the people who are mourning or who are celebrating or whatever they're experiencing and um and listen to them and give them the space to talk and faithfully interpret what it is they're telling you so there are uh, i mean i recognize that some days like uh today is june 20th and there were some road bombings i believe in the west bank that were targeted at settlers. I heard you in the morning reporting that on a two-way with the host. But there are also other stories that you tell um, that you're not necessarily just responding to the breaking news of the day. And you still have a a lot of options. You're in a story-rich environment. How do you decide which leads to follow? Well, I'm re- I'm recalling one day recently where I went to the old city of Jerusalem after several days of some really intense violence, and it was a period of Jewish and Christian and Muslim holidays, and my task was to go on the radio and to talk about the recent tensions, and and I was struck because there were tensions and, and actual violence and 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 stories to tell, and yet I was standing there in the middle of the old city with the historic old city stone walls behind me and, and walking through the, the old city streets and watching people of, of three different faiths celebrating their holidays. My job is not to ignore uh, the tensions and the actual bloody violence that, that we've seen, but it's also to try to describe this really strange dynamic here, which is that those things exist coexist alongside people's determination to just continue their life and to celebrate their holidays and their life cycle events. It's this kind of rhythm of life here where it's it's a stubbornness. It's an insistence um, that we continue to live life and we don't ignore and we don't flatten um, the the horrific events that others have experienced, but we also kind of recognize and honor the fact that people do, you know, go out and pray and shop and um, continue to mark the rhythm of their lives. 
So I'd like to play a clip. This is from a three-part series that you reported for All Things Considered, which is the afternoon uh, weekday news magazine that airs on public radio stations all over the U.S. This is a series about what it takes for people living in the Gaza Strip to get urgently needed medical care. There's a shortage of both equipment and doctors in Gaza. Uh, So when a doctor in Gaza determines that their patient needs care that they can't provide inside of Gaza, the doctor will sometimes apply for a permit for the patient to travel to a hospital inside of Israel or in the West Bank. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So in this clip, you are accompanying a 70-year-old Palestinian man named Yosef Al-Kurd and his He's on a journey to a hospital in the West Bank for open-heart surgery. And his wife, Faiza, Faiza and him, uh, they have to travel through Israel, obviously, to get there. And they're making the trip in a car driven by Arnon Avni, uh, who's a Jewish-Israeli volunteer. So this scene starts on the Israeli side of the Gaza checkpoint. Avni is driving. Uh, you're in the passenger seat. And Yusuf Al-Kurd and Faiza are getting into the car. Should we pull the car, uh, the seat up a little bit? Okay. Uh, oh. Uh, Yusuf Al-Kurd is in pain. The Israeli volunteer driver puts the destination in his navigation app, a checkpoint in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Do you speak any Arabic, Arnon? No, a few words. Not really speaking. And do you speak English? Half half. Half half. And Yusuf, and English? Do you speak English? Deutsch. 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 Oh. He studied to be an audio engineer in Germany decades ago. He and Avni don't share a language, but they do have some things in common. They're about the same age, and Avni's father died of a heart attack. Oh, he's complaining about his chest. That's I can't help. The pain is severe, he says. Kurd's wife Faiza is in Israel for the first time in her life. She's 58. She says it's another world. It's clean, it's wide, it's open, it's not everyone is squished together like in Jabalia refugee camp where she lives. I see the eyes of all of my passengers, all my travelers, and they, all of them feel the same. She asks, what's that bridge? She's never seen an overpass before. I should mention this is from part three of the three-part series. Took a lot to get to that point. Can you talk a little bit about the story leading up to that scene? You had, you know, this long, arduous journey of of the Palestinian heart patient, Yusuf al-Kurd, just to try to get the right uh, approvals, not only from Palestinian authorities to cover his medical care, uh, but also the Israeli security apparatus. He was waiting for months and months without an answer about whether he would be allowed permission to cross, you know, one of the most fortified borders on the planet, Israel's border with Gaza. And, you know, you hear in that scene, not only is is he in immense pain, um, but you you understand, you know, they don't have a, a language of communication. 
And yet, even though there was so much a, a world of difference between between them, there were these similarities. You know, the Israeli driver had a history, a family history of heart problems, just like his Palestinian patient. And those small details really help you understand dynamics that you don't always hear in the in in the sort of cacophony of headlines of what's going on in this conflict. Uh, when you get two Palestinians from Gaza and an Israeli in a car, a really rare occurrence. Um, you know, there's even some laughter, humor, there's there's tenderness, um, there's empathy. Yeah, and those details really stay with you as a listener. So I want to talk about challenges to your reporting. I can imagine, um, you know, because you're interviewing people in a highly polarized and highly politicized place, even reporters have identities based on how you look, your name, your accent, who you work for. There are people who will say, this reporter has an agenda. He's going to make me look bad. I don't want to talk to him. How do you um, get around these type of suspicions? How do you deal with it? Well, I have an advantage, which is that I have, I've been based here in the region for about a decade and a half. It's, it's a long time. And I've, I've learned the languages. And I feel that when I enter all of these disparate spaces, you know, whether it's um, the Gaza Strip or a Palestinian refugee camp in the West Bank or an Israeli settlement or a Palestinian home, an Israeli home, I, I, I'm able to give people a sense that they can feel that like they're speaking to someone who gets them, um, and so I, I, I hold this this funny duality, which is that I do come in as the American journalist. Um, I have a consciousness of someone observing from the outside, but I have this kind of insider's perspective. You know, living here and understanding the the nuances of how do you navigate, um, you know, sitting and having tea with a person in a settlement versus a person in a Palestinian refugee camp, um, and so I I think I hope that I bring a sense of authenticity to you know to to any interaction that I have with people here, and a sense of authenticity on the radio as well. I'm lucky because this is a region where people like to talk. Yeah, they do. <laughs> you know, people answer their cell phones. And I'm talking about, you know, the some of the highest officials all the way down to to just the person, you know, sitting on the street and, and you walk up to them. This is a very vibrant and vivacious, obstinate place where people get very intimate and very personal very quickly. And it's really easy. It's easier than you know you think to just show up somewhere and be welcome as a guest. You have to know how to navigate the, the the cultural codes, but oftentimes people truly just want to be listened to. So sometimes it's enough to be able to kind of step over those suspicions which are there by simply saying, like, I'm here because I, I just want to understand you and understand what you're going through. So when I when I hold that um, in mind, I find that it's really helpful.
So I want to uh, set up another clip. This is a report you did this April on the eve of the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence. And as anyone who's been following the news about this region knows, the day came in the midst of a lot of turmoil. There have been Israelis in the streets for months protesting the proposed overhaul of the judicial system. And the right-wing government is allowing for more uh, robust settlement expansion in the West Bank. So you went to talk to some Israelis about how they see the country's future. And in this clip, you're speaking with Yaniv Ben-Ami. He works uh, for a big tech company in the city of Kezaria. And the first thing we're going to hear is Ben-Ami and other men praying in Hebrew, um, reciting the Mourner's Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead. He's been going to synagogue to recite prayers for his mother since she died recently. He's not religious, but he's trying to follow more Jewish traditions. He voted for a religious party, including far-right figures. He says he wishes Israel's far-right government would tone things down. But he also thinks the street protesters are exaggerating. The red lines of each one of us is not that far away from each other. We want a Jewish country. We need to maybe improve it, but it's pretty free. What concerns him is changes in Israel's population, which pose unresolved challenges to Israel's Jewish character. In the military reserves, he apprehended African migrants fleeing to Israel. They're Muslim and Christian. I've arrested roughly 300, 400, 500, I could not remember. What happened is that all of them stayed here, having their own babies, which this is a really... A, Tragedy, because their babies, who have been born in Israel, have been raised in Israel, and now they speak Hebrew, they are not even aware that they are not Jews. No, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying that the demography is changing. And he's worried about the young generation of Arab citizens in Israel. I'm trying not to generalize, but it looks like most of it do not accept Israel as Israel. But he does think a Jewish country can embrace its Arab citizens if they're willing to embrace it. If you with us, we with us, because we have, we want to survive together as a country, together. I think this tension that we hear in Benami's words, it kind of hints at um, this issue that people are in the world, people in the world who feel at all invested or concerned about Israel's future are grappling with, which is, can you have a Jewish state that is multicultural and multireligious? And I want to use this as a window into talking about your audience, Daniel, because um, I know a bit, a little bit about the NPR audience. I do write as a freelancer for NPR, and I'm pretty sure that many of the people listening to your stories are thinking about questions of equality and democracy in the region you cover. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your audience? I know that my audience is probably on any given day, maybe 30 million, maybe 40 million, maybe f fewer, more um, listeners out there uh, all around the world, mostly in the U.S. And, you know, I, I know that many of them are, are sort of emotionally invested in the story, but a lot of them are just going about their day and they simply just want to know what's going on in, in, in different parts of the world. And, and so I always keep that in mind when I think 
about how do I put together a story. So you know, when I when it it feels like sometimes like a, a an impossible task. Um, how do you how do you give something to listeners who are so deeply invested and and give them a sense that they're learning something new while also not generalizing too much for the general audience that just is kind of coming fresh to the story. And so I do like to latch on to, you know, the small details, um, the the sound of of someone praying for their mother who's passed away or talking about their own personal experience. Like we just heard this man talking about his time in the army arresting 300, 400, 500 different African migrants um, fleeing from Egypt into Israel. I have a mantra, which is I try to help my listeners walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And um, those are a lot of shoes and a lot of different stories. And I'm reporting different stories and, and walking miles in different people's shoes, people who would never meet each other um, in their own lives. And I'm, I'm remembering being with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, on a trip to the U.S. and having my microphone, you know, right up inches from his from his face, asking him a question, and then several weeks later being in Gaza and having that same microphone inches away from the from the head of the Hamas militant group that that runs Gaza. These are two sworn enemies who would never meet each other or speak to each other, and yet I have this special invisibility cloak in a way. I have this special role of being able to to enter these different worlds and to try to understand people who who wouldn't uh, ever meet each other. And so that's something that's really complicated um, for, I know, a lot of our listeners to to, to wrap their heads around, especially if they are um, emotionally invested in one side of, of this drama or another. But I do feel it's my responsibility, not necessarily in the same, in, in the same three and a half minute story, let's say, but throughout my body of work to really help my listeners walk a mile in different people's shoes. I want to talk now about one of my favorite pieces from your body of work, and I know it's also one of your favorites. This is a podcast episode you reported for NPR's podcast, Rough Translation, uh, back in the spring of 2020, and it's called Hotel Corona. Could you set up the general premise of the story, and then I'll set up the clip? Sure. During the COVID pandemic, in in the very first months of it, Israel was putting COVID-positive people in hotels and um, and quarantining them all together in hotels until they passed two negative tests and, and were let go. And this was a group of people from all different walks of life in the Holy Land, Palestinians from Jerusalem, um, Israelis who are from ultra-Orthodox Jewish religious backgrounds, secular Israeli Jews. I mean, you name it, they were there. And it was just this kind of wild social experiment. So in the scene at the beginning of this clip, we're at a stand-up comedy show in the lobby of the Don Hotel, which is where the uh, all these patients are quarantined. And there's a professional comedian performing who is also a patient. Her name is Noam Schuster Eliassi, and she's a secular Jew. 
So first we hear your voice narrating, and then we'll hear from the comedian Noam. Uh, then there's a bit more narration from Gregory Warner, who's the host of the podcast, uh, kind of co-narrated with you. And then finally, we'll hear from Aisha Al-Shab. She's a young Muslim Arab woman who works as a janitor. Making jokes in the Middle East, you never know who you're going to offend. And of all the audiences Noam faced as a peace activist or as a comedian, the crowd in the lobby of Hotel Corona seemed like the most diverse. It was just a bunch of old, young, religious, secular, Arab, Jewish, everything, just sitting in the lobby, laughing, sometimes not laughing, screaming, um, coughing, (laughs) coughing, definitely coughing. She starts making jokes about this one supermarket cashier who ends up infecting her entire village. And it turns out the cashier is in the audience. And the girl was like, yeah, that's me. I did it. <laughs> she was in the show. <laughs> so I was like, you're the cashier in the, in the supermarket. You, you made all your village have corona. And everybody was laughing. A lot of this footage was filmed by Aisha, the hospital janitor who came to the hotel with her brother. She'd never been to a live comedy show before and never even been in a room where Arabs and Jews shared a joke before. And laughing on something like common. The next morning, Aisha comes down to breakfast. And when she looks around to decide which group she's going to sit down with today, she realizes that something seems to be different. Like all the people, like Jewish, Arab, and they starting to sitting together, talking together, eating together, sharing uh, a lot of stuff. If before everyone was sitting in their own group, now they're all mixed. And it's not just Aisha breaking the ice. People are approaching her. And I asked them about their religion, like about the Jewish people. Like why when the woman get married, she started to cover her hair. And why the guys wearing the kippah, and they explain me a lot. Had you ever asked those questions before? To a Jewish, no. Um, like most of things, like it's hard to talk about. And the Jews asked her some of the most sensitive questions that a Palestinian citizen of Israel can face. Like, do you consider yourself Israeli or Palestinian? But the question here felt friendly, genuinely curious. They didn't judge me like, I'm Arabian, I'm Muslim, I'm that. No, I'm a human that you can talk to me. Like there is no difference between us. If you are listening uh, after you finish this podcast, definitely go look up Hotel Corona. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, So Daniel, after I listened to this episode, you know, I have like the initial warm fuzzy feelings. And then I think about all of the news coming from Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. I'm seeing it in my head as a big pie chart. And like 95% of that pie is conflict, whether it's between Jews and Palestinians or secular Jews and religious Jews. It's about deeply opposing groups. And then Daniel Estrin comes along with like his cake slicer (laughs) and he carves out this little slice of pie about people coming together and sharing cultures, and it's, like, so delicious and so sweet because the rest of the pie is not so much. Uh, Is this a realistic view of of life in the region, or is my perception a result of, you know, negative news bias? 
it's so interesting how you compare it to you know uh, the pie chart and 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 sort of describing this as the one percent um, happy quotient because I'm struck by how people um, listen to this story. A lot of people said, like you, uh, they found it uplifting. Um, but th- there was another reaction to to this episode by some people who live here, and that reaction was that they found it devastating that this kind of environment exists in a controlled experiment where all the conditions are the same for for all. Um, they were all fed the same food. They were all sleeping in the same hotel rooms. Uh, when outside of the walls of the hotel, you know, in real life, um, there's a completely different kind of power structure, and um, and so it's 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 hard for me to kind of quantify what percentage of life here is mutual understanding and respect and what percentage is conflict. Um, I think it's a little bit more like, like a salad um, (laughs) and not a pie. And, you know, sometimes you take a bite and you get a, a, a taste of a little bit of both. And, and so I think that's, that's just, my job is to, is to give my listeners a, a bite of that salad with all those different elements um, every single time. So it's like a fatouche or a tabbouleh. <laughs> it's a, it's a salad-rich region. You've got your burgle and you've got your parsley and you've got your onions and, you know, some of it burns your tongue. And, but in the end, it's, uh, it's delicious. And there is just a vivaciousness of life, even for those who have so little and who have lost so much here. And I, I, I really try as much as possible to bring that element into my reporting because I find it's just as true as, um, as some of the, the pain um, and the loss that people do feel here. Well, I, I still like thinking about at least this, um, this podcast episode as a, as a little slice of peace pie. <laughs> and it makes me think about how the prospect of you know serious political peace has slipped further from view in my lifetime. You don't hear much about a two-state solution. And the idea of one state where Palestinians and Jews would live together without a military occupation, it's really hard to see how we get there from here. Do you think these, these little glimpses of peace or these tasty bits of salad do you think that's the most peace that can be hoped for in the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean? I think what's important to remember is that this this story doesn't really have a clear ending and that maybe the concept of a two-state solution, a solution to the conflict, um, a final stop on the train where uh, – everything will be resolved is is not the dynamic that people believe in or experience here that's what makes it so frustrating and so fascinating is that you know israel is a place without final borders uh, the palestinian territories the the concept of palestine i mean all of these things are still ferociously up for debate and so 
you, you know, I, that's, I just think that's what makes it so important to, to not lose hope because, um, dynamics change all the time. Sometimes they change for the worse. Um, but you always kind of see new possibilities and, 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 and you just kind of live every day knowing that, uh, things can change on a dime, you know, for better or for worse, but, but the contours of of sort of what that final kumbaya piece looks like, I mean, I think people have a, a healthy dose of reality here that um, that might not be what's in store for them. But I see my job as as holding sort of contradictory truths in my hands at the same time. This immense despair and immense uh, possibilities. Both of them coexist here. That's a great answer. Uh, so I have one more question before we wrap up. Recently, you, you also did a very different type of piece on uh, the morning news as a departure from your beat. It was a conversation between three men with the same name, and that name is Daniel Estrin. <laughs> uh, there was you. One of them was a heavy metal rocker from Australia who is competing in Eurovision. The other one was the frontman for the 90s rock band Hoobastank. And I'm not going to play a clip, but we'll link to it in the show notes. So I just want to ask, um, would you trade places if you had a magic wand? Would you give up your life for a life of rock and roll? Absolutely. I. But you know what? <laughs> I, I get to be consoled by the fact that um, I have my own microphone. You know, I might, I might not be crooning um, – heavy metal or rock ballads, but in my own little NPR world, I really do feel like a rock star. I just pinch myself. I feel enormously grateful that I get to, I get to do this job and talk on the radio that I listened to growing up and go to different places. And you know, that that's my job. It's really hard, but it's really fun. I really do feel like a rock star. Well, thank you so much, Daniel Astron. This has been a pleasure. You are most welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We've included links in the show notes to all of Daniel's stories that we discussed in this interview. You can follow Daniel Estrin on Twitter, at Daniel Estrin. And for a visual side to Daniel's work, take a look at his Instagram, at Daniel Estrin 22. If you like this episode, and especially if you know someone else who might appreciate it, perhaps an NPR listener, please share it. We've got a link in the show notes that you can copy and paste. This episode was produced and guest hosted by Andrew Moraskin. Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories Peace Stories Project. And Faith McClure keeps the gears turning. I'm Jamil Simon. Thanks so much for listening, and talk soon.